0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The virus is spreading. It's
1: ernst. You must stay at home.
2: Europe is now coming to their support. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again.
1: Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. We hope you're healthy and safe wherever in the world this podcast finds you. Later in this episode, we're going to start on a virtual tour of the Brussels bubble, looking at the way politics normally works in the EU, how it's changed in these times of crisis. So if you want a behind-the-scenes look at how we usually cover the European Commission, or if you're an inhabitant of the Brussels bubble and are feeling nostalgic about it, be sure to keep listening. But first, let's get to our podcast panel, coming to you from around the continent. So a warm welcome uh, from our podcast panel, going from the top to the bottom of my screen, Annabelle Dixon in Norwich. Hi, Annabel. Hello. Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem.
0: Bonjour, Andrew.
1: And uh, guten Tag to Matt Karnitschnick in Berlin. Gott. Close, Scott. you're Scott, you went all Austrian on us. Um, okay, uh, let's, uh, let's plunge right in because so much uh, has happened since we spoke uh, last week. You know, Boris Johnson has been taken to hospital and then placed in intensive care. We had a Eurogroup uh, meeting to try and agree a big economic response to the coronavirus crisis, which failed to do so. So we're recording uh, Thursday around midday. They're going to have another shot at it later today. And we also had the European Commission try to unveil a roadmap for a kind of way out of all these lockdowns and then swiftly get uh, slapped down by some angry member countries who thought that was sending the wrong signal at the wrong time. So let's start with uh, the UK, um, Annabel, Boris Johnson taken to hospital. Uh, who's running Britain?
3: Yeah, that's right. So it's Dominic Raab, who is the foreign secretary, little-known foreign secretary, is... Now, sort of in charge, it's all a bit murky. We don't have an official vice president or official deputy prime minister, so the UK is kind of feeling its way. You know, we have quite a fluid um, constitution, and in these sorts of situations, it turns out that that it's also quite vague. So, I mean, he's actually relatively inexperienced. Um, He was Brexit Secretary. Our listeners may may or may not remember.
1: Yeah, not for very long, so they may not remember, right? He didn't
4: didn't, exactly. Yeah,
3: he only lasted about four months, and and that's really that was his only cabinet experience. Um, He's a karate black belt lawyer. Are the top facts. But but he's actually he's not a very charismatic person you know he's not a great media performer. he's sort of competent he can be sent out to to hold a line, play it straight but he lacks that kind of enthusiasm and optimism that that Boris Johnson has and I mean he he's he's an ambitious guy he had a brief run at the Tory leadership um, against Boris Johnson and he's a he he's a real kind of true died in the world brexiteer um but he got completely flattened by the boris juggernaut during during the tory leadership contest mm. who
1: I, I saw he was compared in a piece you wrote today uh, by someone who knows him to james milner the uh, liverpool midfielder who's a kind of utility player kind of useful guy behind the the scenes uh, as i said earlier i'm not sure uh, james milner would uh, thank everyone for that comparison but but the I guess the question then is so who are the who are the star players behind the scenes I mean it's great to have a James Milner in your team but who else you know is going to be kind of pulling the levers and and making the decisions while Boris Johnson is in hospital
3: well th- that's really the big question and it, it seems there's a real reluctance from anyone to, to make any big decisions uh, I spoke to a lot of people yesterday and, um, you know, the message I kept getting was, well, it's, it's going to be a big call to end the lockdown. You know, we really need to wait for Boris. Hopefully Boris will be back soon. And he certainly Dominic Raab, when, when he first kind of was asked to deputize by the prime minister as he was wheeled into intensive care, came out and said, you know, we're going to follow Boris's wishes. He's very, been very clear, you know, it's sort of, First among equals, cabinet by consensus. He doesn't want to be kind of making any big calls at the moment, which is, of course, fine for a few days. But we don't know what's going to happen in the next few days. We don't know if Boris Johnson's going to be out for a matter of days, a matter of weeks, a matter of months, even. Um, You know, the the fact he's in intensive care suggests that he's pretty seriously
2: ill. Maybe the Queen will have to uh, get involved. Yeah. Make the big decision.
1: Well, that's another thing that's happened since since we spoke the Queen. I gave a barnstorming speech that seemed to turn even, you know, hardened Republicans into monarchists for a few minutes. So um, she certainly at least has a good speechwriter. What do you make of the, the Boris uh, kind of business from, from Berlin and the way that it's uh, been handled?
2: Well, I think, you know, there is a bit, unfortunately, of quiet Schadenfreude here amongst some people who look at the way the UK has handled it and a bit of the kind of hubris, maybe, uh, in some of Boris's remarks, you know, several weeks ago, and the fact that now he has got it is sort of seen as just further evidence of, um, you know, his poor governing style, um, you know, including everything that's happened with Brexit. So I think it's sort of confirmed this view uh, in Germany amongst sort of, you know, most people. That um, their kind of you know boring politics are really much more reliable in times of crisis than this kind of bombastic style that we've seen recently in the UK and and the US, uh, which is, is is also struggling to get its arms around this crisis.
3: It's interesting you say that because that's not the view in the British public. You know, you look at the polls and people think Boris has actually done a pretty good job. There's a lot of sympathy for him, and there, there are the voices you know the liberal left who say, Well you know he, he had this coming, he was going around shaking hands, um, but in the kind of wider population, he has a huge level of support which which has been very interesting
1: I think also it seems like all the all the leaders at the moment are benefiting same with with macron right from from high approval ratings, kind of national crisis. People tend to rally around the leaders, at least at first.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that's kind of bizarre or interesting in France is that while Macron's approval ratings haven't been this high in literally two years, he's at the the highest level he's had in two years. uh, At the same time, a a, a big majority of people, according to polls, think that the government has uh, hidden information from them, has been lying to them, hasn't really been taking the right decisions at the right time. You know, it'll be interesting to see once we're out of this. This part of this crisis, whether uh, this bump that all of these leaders are, are having is actually going to hold,
3: and that's that's true. When you get the inquiry, you know there'll be inevitable inquiries about what went wrong. When we have the full death toll, you know we aren't at the peak of the crisis yet. That could, of course, all change. But. Well, we've
2: got the story in Politico this week about what went wrong. right? Yeah,
1: exactly. We've the already done the inquiry. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. it's done. Uh, you can read it on the website. Um, but talking about, you know, when we get out of of this phase uh, brings us on to this whole question, which we started to talk about last week. What happens after a lockdown? Um, you know, how long will people put up for, with this, and when will governments feel? it's uh, safe and wise to start easing the restrictions. And we've seen some countries start to take the first steps. Now, those were countries, in some cases anyway, that already had particularly tight restrictions. Austria, Denmark, uh, the Czech Republic. Talking about taking measures and starting to take measures to ease up a bit. The European Commission had a plan to present what they called a roadmap to exit, which would kind of lay out the kind of benchmarks or ways to decide when to open things up. And um, obviously the idea was that there should be some kind of coordination because this could also involve borders. However, they were uh, slapped down very quickly by uh, some member states who thought this was sending, you know, the wrong signal at a time when they're still trying to get millions of people to stay at home. So I just wanted to check in with you in terms of where, where where the government stands where you are and and how you you see this kind of playing out. Uh, Reem, what's the situation in France?
0: So on Monday night, uh, Macron is supposed to give a big speech precisely about this. Uh, We are told by the Élysée that he will absolutely extend uh, the lockdown, but we don't know uh, how much longer he's going to extend it. And what's very interesting, so this will be his fourth speech. for this speech, he's actually been consulting much wider than he was before. So for the other speeches, he had consulted with uh, the parties, the scientific committee that he set up uh, to advise him, uh, and obviously his own government. But this time around, we're told he's actually consulting the WHO Director General. He's also talking, I'm told, to European partners, because the exit strategy is also going to depend on and will need European coordination because exiting lockdown also means lifting those border controls or closures that we've seen happen over the course of this crisis. And of course, none of the governments want to take a risk of by lifting the lockdown actually relaunching like a second wave of this of this virus. And one last thing on this: in France, the the, the curve has actually not been um, sort of. In increasing uh, very rapidly which has been kind of re- reassuring for the french people but uh, you hear health officials constantly saying yes the increase is slow is slowing down but we're still in positive territory and so we have not reached the epidemic peak and they're very worried that because the the numbers haven't been sort of spectacularly you know bad people are thinking oh it's okay we can get out of the lockdown but the health officials are like, no, absolutely not. We are not out of the woods. We need to stay in lockdown for longer until at least we reach the peak. Uh,
1: yeah. And, and I wonder, what's the sort of public attitude and political attitude in Berlin, Matt? Because again, we know that the, the, the death numbers have been markedly lower in Germany. So, you know, is there, is there pressure growing for people saying, you know, we've, we've got this, we can start to relax things?
2: Well, I think you have this this tension everywhere and they've set this date of after Easter um April the 20th I think is when you know they wanted to talk about possibly relaxing things here and they're they're just going to have to revisit it I think on a on a daily basis but the problem is the danger is over the kind of coming Easter break with the weather being as sort of warm as it is and when you see the the, the numbers falling slightly there's obviously a danger that people are going to think, well, you know, now we can go out again, we can meet our friends and um, go on walks in the park without, you know, having to worry about anything. And I, I, I think that is something that the uh, the federal government anyway is very concerned about.
1: Yeah. Annabelle, where does it stand? When is, when is a decision due uh, on, from the UK?
3: Well, we're told that they're going to be reviewing it next week, but, um, you know, very strong briefing that don't expect lockdown to be lifted anytime soon. In fact, they're even talking about, you know, tightening the measures. But as I said earlier, you know, in terms of some, be, someone being there to make a decision about ending of the lockdown, there's also a reluctance sort of politically...
1: Mm. Let's switch to the economic uh, front now. Um, we had this kind of virtual version of a of a classic all-nighter, uh, Brussels all-nighter, when um, uh, Eurozone finance ministers were trying to agree on an economic uh, response uh, to the crisis. Uh, again, a lot of the dispute was around uh, whether the idea of corona bonds should be on the table. Uh, there's also a discussion about how much to use the Eurozone's bailout fund, Matt, where do you see this going, or what are the big fault lines here? What's what's behind it? Because we're recording, obviously, before they have another shot tonight. So there's some things we can be pretty sure won't happen, but there are some things where we don't quite know how it's going to turn out.
2: Yeah, I I, I think it's pretty clear that there won't be Corona bonds or Euro bonds, as uh, they're often called, and the reason is that Germany and its allies in Northern Europe are are not willing to go down that road. They don't want to cross this Rubicon of mutualizing debt because they fear that if you do it once, you're never going to manage to put the genie back in the bottle, as it were, even if, if in this case it were used on a, on a limited basis just for this crisis. It's something that they are almost ideologically – or not almost, they're very ideologically uh, opposed to it. and. I think in Germany in particular, they've so poisoned the well in the population over the years, uh, the mainstream parties, with their strong opposition to this idea that it would be very impossible – it would be very difficult, rather, to explain to Germans – why they were doing it now, even though, you know, you you have this crisis to deal with. So I think instead of this, they've actually done a very good job, the, the Germans and Dutch and so forth, in diverting attention in this Eurogroup away from the Corona bonds by fighting with the Italians and the Spanish over the minutiae of another question, which is the conditionality for loans – from the bailout front fund, which is called the ESM. And and the, the idea that's on the table is that Italy, Spain, and other countries, if they want to, could take loans from this 500 billion euro bailout fund. And th- the question is, what kind of conditions would they have to agree to in order to get that money? And normally, the conditionality for these loans is quite strict. And in this case, because this is not a case of a country not managing its books properly, uh, but, you know, more or less a natural disaster, the southern countries want somewhat uh, relaxed conditions. It it really, at the end of the day, is kind of a minor point. And this money in the fund is unlikely to be enough at the end of the day to uh, give Italy what it needs anyway, for example. But this is sort of a classic example of How, you know, there's a lot of sort of theatrics, there's a lot of back and forth, these long meetings. At the end of the day, not much really comes out of it. And I think if something really is going to happen here substantially, it's going to have to be at the leader level and and not at the uh, finance minister's level where, where it is right now.
1: Okay. Anything else anybody wants to raise before we wrap up?
2: Yeah, I would just say on this question of aid for Italy and the other southern countries, that I think this is an issue that's just going to keep coming up. It's not going to go away. If, as most economists think, their economic position just continues to deteriorate dramatically in the coming weeks, there's going to be no way around trying to find other ways to go in and help. And if you look at the way that uh, Germany, in particular, has dealt with past crises of this nature. It's it's always been to do as as little as possible until they have no choice but to do something big. And I I don't think that we're maybe at that stage yet, but it seems like we're going to get there pretty soon. So I would say you know kind of watch this space. And I I think it's a mistake for people to be distracted by the Dutch and this other things because I think what the Dutch are doing they're basically acting as a proxy for Germany in this. Whole debate, and they're, they're doing a very good job of kind of deflecting attention away from what's going on in Berlin and Berlin's position on these issues by, by playing essentially uh, the bad cop. But I don't think many people who look at this stuff closely or understand the political dynamic would think that, you know, the Dutch could stop Corona bonds if Germany really, you know, wanted to go down that path
0: just to add to what Matt was saying i think it's also interesting to see kind of the bluffing that's also being being done you know you hear some in France say well if no one's going to move we actually can't act, uh, can't live with the political consequences of italy and spain feeling left out so we may have to move on our own whether they actually have the ability to do that aka without germany and the netherlands seems a little sort of, you know, far fetched to me. Uh, But it's interesting that they're, you know, putting that out in terms of feelers. Uh, And the other thing I think that's that this is revealing is that, you know, the Franco German, whatever compromise is no longer enough, actually, to get Europe going. I mean, there are other countries now who say, we're no longer willing to just fold to whatever compromise you two figure out. And I think that's also an interesting new dynamic in the EU.
1: Yeah, and I think things are just very heated on all sides, right? This is, um um you know, Corona Bonds has become symbolic of something bigger, uh, rightly or wrongly. And so you really feel that it's uh, it's become quite fundamental. And I think, you know, there's just a danger, right? When anything becomes so fundamental and so much um, emotion gets attached to it, rightly or wrongly, then, you know, the stakes just get a lot higher for everyone. So we'll see how it plays out. OK, uh, Annabelle, Reem, Matt. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. Happy Easter. Thank you.
3: Happy Easter. Oh yeah, happy
1: Easter. <laughs> Did you get your eggs, Annabelle? Were you allowed to buy the eggs?
3: <laughs> no, but I've had the Easter bunnies. Uh, key worker, so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> really? So he's okay. Glad to hear that. Now, as promised, we're going to take you on a virtual tour of the Brussels bubble. And our first tour guide today is Lily Byer from our Brussels politics team. So, Lily, we're doing this uh, virtual uh, Brussels tour or tour of the EU quarter, Um, something to give nostalgists who are missing the Brussels bubble at the moment, something to think fondly of and to also explain to people who are maybe not so familiar with how the EU quarter normally works how it does normally work and how it's working at the moment uh, in the middle of the lockdown. So you're going to be our guide for the midday briefing, the midday press briefing from the European Commission. So just um, set the scene a little bit for us.
5: So the midday briefing, unsurprisingly, uh, takes place around noon every day of the week at the European Commission at its main headquarters, the Berlimont. Uh, It takes place in a big hall that has a lot of small cabins upstairs for translators. And usually, well, depending on on the day, we could have a a dozen reporters or um, on a very busy day, uh, even a few dozen. At Politico, we usually try to have at least one reporter go to the midday every day to ask questions and for us as reporters the big advantage of going to the midday briefing at the commission is that it's really the one time of the day the one place where you could go and pose any question you want and the commission is essentially obligated to answer on the record at times of course they say we don't know or we'll look into it we'll get back to you later but in principle it's our one opportunity to Ask a person on stage a direct question and to get an answer to that. So it's pretty valuable in, in that sense. Uh, the way it works is that usually the chief spokesperson or his deputy is on stage making announcements on behalf of Ursula von der Leyen and the commission. And there's also a team of other spokespeople who specialize by topic area, who sit in the room. And if a question comes up that uh, they specialize in, so for example, a question on the rule of law, then someone who specializes in justice and rule of law affairs would go on stage and answer that question in detail.
1: Right. And it also uh, gives you the opportunity to ask um, follow-up questions, right? And we should say the chief spokesman at the moment of the commission is Eric Mamère. And um, we're going to play a clip just to give people a flavour of a press conference from a few weeks back where you were asking him about... Greek police and their treatment of migrants on the Turkish border.
5: Um, thank you very much, Lily from Politico. Um, I have a few quick questions. The first one, and it would be great if I could get a yes or no answer. Is it legal to fire rubber bullets at asylum seekers? Yes
4: or no? You won't uh, You won't get a straight yes or no answer from me on your question. Uh, I'm afraid, as you know, uh, We have said, and the commissioners who were here yesterday in the press room have described at length uh, the situation uh, which is uh, with the law. And it is for the uh, Greek authorities to ensure that this is done. Uh, And that is uh, what we expect that they will, that they will do.
5: I'm just a bit confused because as, as the guardian of the treaties, it is the Commission's duty to examine things like this. So I don't understand why we can't get, this is the second day I'm asking this question, why we can't get a straight answer. Is it legal under EU law to fire rubber bullets at asylum seekers?
4: I would say that you cannot have a theoretical question like that. It all depends on the circumstances and it is for the Greek authorities
1: in their time. And so I think the interesting thing there is that um, even though he is not keen to answer, he is at least pressed to answer. And he's pressed not just by you, right? This is another thing that can happen, is that then other colleagues can, can follow up as, a, as an Austrian colleague did. Follow up to Lily's question. You said you expect the Greek authorities to act in line with the law, the EU regulations and so forth and so forth how do you control whether they actually do it if you say that the use of rubber bullets actually depends on the circumstances and then secondly i mean how valuable do you think all of that is given it, in a sense you didn't get the answer a clear answer there but what do you think the value of of the follow-up is
5: i think the follow-up is actually the most important element of the midday in the sense that oftentimes we we get answers that feel a bit canned, memorized. Sometimes spokespeople even read them. They're just reading out the commission's formal line. But by then asking for a follow up, we can probe a bit deeper, um, try to get a few more details or even just highlight at times for our readers that the commission simply does not have an answer on a particular topic. Um, So it's a very powerful tool. And really, in our current situation with most of us working from home, um, it's the thing that we miss most. So now we have to send our questions ahead of time in writing by 11 o'clock. And there are a couple of shortcomings with that. First of all, we don't know what kind of announcements will be made that day. So we're sending in questions on topics of our choice without knowing what topics are going to actually come up in the midday. And without being able to do follow-ups real-time, we can't actually address what's being said on stage. Um, And another issue, of course, is that the spokespeople currently get to select from a set of written questions, the ones that they will read, and they get to choose how to respond, of course, on stage. But if they don't fully answer the question, or they only partially answer it, we have absolutely no mechanism of following up and of asking them to fully address the question. And I think many of our colleagues at Politico and also our colleagues in other publications have been in situations um, over the past weeks where uh, potentially they sent in questions that were not fully answered, but then they couldn't get them fully answered because there was no mechanism to do that.
1: Yeah, let's hear a clip from a a recent press conference when uh, the Commission President Ursula von der Leyen came into the press room. One of the slightly strange things about this is they still do it in that press room, right, where they stand at these podiums in this pretty much empty room. And so this is a a recent press conference where Ursula von der Leyen was uh, announcing the Commission's proposal for a kind of Unemployment Reinsurance Scheme Now we'd submitted several questions uh, none of which were posed and you can get a flavour of the strangeness when it's basically the spokesman asking the questions uh, of the Commission President.
4: Thank you very much President, we have uh, received many questions, Um, the first that uh, we will take is from Ana Nunes Milara from Spanish television Telecinco Has the European Commission talked with member states in order to be sure that it will get the $25 guarantee? Which country has shown interest in participating? And in this line, when do you expect this money will get to Spain or Italy?
0: Well, I have first mentioned sure at the European Council, so to all heads of state and government. Uh, In our last European Council, I am in ongoing contact with the heads of state and government, and indeed I followed up with some of them explicitly on the instrument of SURE. Those I've spoken to were interested, they were open, and they were positive, and this is important. So now we put forward our proposal. It will be discussed in the Eurogroup, and we're confident of quick uh, adoption.
4: Second question from Ep Ehan from the Estonian Public Broadcasting. Is there enough political support for the plan among northern states? Who have
1: been- okay, now, uh, uh, as we were saying, there, it doesn't have to be this way, or it, doesn't, it seems to us anyway that it does not have to be this way. Uh, there are other uh, organisations which have found different ways to try and simulate something a bit more like a regular press conference. What's been your experience of those?
5: I think governments are experimenting with a host uh, of different methods right now. Uh, The most interesting one that uh, I've seen thus far is the Dutch government, which has tried through WhatsApp, through Zoom, uh, to keep in touch with journalists and also to give us the opportunity... uh, real time to ask ministers questions. So for example, I attended a virtual press conference with the Dutch foreign minister, Stef Bloch, which was on Zoom. And like any video conference, we saw him uh, sitting in front of his computer screen talking to us directly. And any reporter that wanted uh, could raise their hand virtually um, and directly ask the minister a question and get an answer.
1: Okay, but we should say that the Commission has addressed these concerns uh, during a recent midday briefing. Here's a summary of what Éric Mamer had to say about why a virtual press briefing hasn't been possible so far.
4: I've never said that uh, we would not consider other options. In fact, we have been looking uh, for some time at um, other options um, to uh, allow for a more interactive press briefing. But contrary to what I read on Twitter feeds in particular, it's not as simple as seems to be implied. It's uh, you know it's technically not easy. Um, we need to be able to organize things by subject. We have to make this secure for you. I keep seeing things on Twitter saying, just use App X, just use App Y. And then you need to read in the newspapers and our IT services uh, says itself, many of these applications are not secure enough according to our criteria or we have no proof of their security and there could be data breaches that affect the journalists and um, last but not least um, we want uh, to put in place a system that is equivalent or actually identical to what uh, the parliament and the council will be using so that you don't have to juggle as i know you are doing at the moment between lots of different apps or lots of different um, systems there's also the vexed issue of follow-ups uh, which I which I understand uh, but first of all let me remind you that we are always uh, available for follow-ups bilaterally after the midday briefing and that if a spokesperson wants to give you an on the record answer uh, on a follow-up uh, he can he or she can do that and you can uh, both make it available on social media so that it's available to, um to everyone
1: there is also another part to the midday right where people can come up to the podium afterwards right and that's another that can also be a kind of useful element of, of the midday briefing right
5: absolutely so usually after the briefings uh, some journalists stay on and go talk to the specialized spokespeople a bit more in depth about certain topics. And they get a lot of background material uh, that way, things that were not said from the podium or sometimes things that the commission is not fully comfortable saying in front of the cameras, but is more comfortable saying off the record. And and that's a very useful tool.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I, I guess we would argue from our point of view that I do think Taking the temperature of the press corps is sometimes very useful for them in terms of being able to feedback to their bosses, this issue is big, we're going to have to come up with a better answer, right? Whereas at the moment, I don't think they really get that sense immediately of, you know, what's kind of gone a bit radioactive, and that can make them look pretty slow to react sometimes.
5: There does seem to be a disconnect,
1: <laughs> you could be a spokeswoman. That's a very diplomatic answer. Uh, okay, Lily, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for the virtual tour of the midday briefing. Thank you. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Please rate the podcast by giving us some stars and leave a review. You can also write to us at podcast at politico.eu We're wishing you a wonderful and safe holiday weekend even though it's not a normal holiday. We'll have a special coronavirus episode on Monday for those of you who have the time to listen and have enjoyed these extra doses of Politico coming through your speakers or headphones in recent weeks. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.